O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. For in perfect faithfulness, you have done marvelous things, things planned long ago. You have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigner's stronghold a city no more, it will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will honor you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall and like the heat of the desert. You silence the uproar of foreigners. As heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is stilled. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord, we trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. The hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. But Moab will be trampled under him as straw is trampled down in the manure. They will spread out their hands in it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. God will bring down their pride despite the cleverness of their hands. He will bring down your high fortified walls and lay them low. He will bring them down to the ground, to the very dust. Thanks, Lucy. Good morning, everyone. As Simon mentioned earlier, welcome to you if you're here for the first time at church. It's great to see you. My name's Joe, and uh, I'll be preaching from Isaiah 24 this morning. Let's pray again um, for God's help as we come to his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we um, sang earlier, we know that your word is food for famished people, riches for the needy soul. So we ask you please to speak to us this morning. Please overcome the unbelief in our hearts and cause your word to bear fruit that will last into eternity. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin um, with this question. Where can we find solid joy in life? That's a question worth giving some thought to, isn't it? Where can we find solid joy in life? 
Our world is chasing after the answer to that question, and there are many answers that we might give. I was walking um, out last night and saw a bus full of students heading into town to the nightclubs and the bars in the city. Is real joy to be found there in the drinking and the dancing? Or we might think of the boardrooms in um, London, in the financial districts, where people are earning millions of pounds each year. Is lasting joy to be found there in those jobs with those wages? Our world and us are looking for joy, aren't we? And we were looking in many different places. Is it found in the work we do, or the money we earn, or the opportunities we take, or the holidays we go on, or the hobbies we pursue? Where is lasting joy to be found? We sing a song at church uh, that includes this line. I wonder what you make of it. Um, The line says this, Solid joys and lasting treasures, none but those of Zion know. The people of Zion are the people of God. And according to this song, the people of God have something solid and lasting and joy-giving that nothing in this world can compare to. Jesus says it's like treasure hidden in a field that is worth giving up everything for. Now, sometimes as we consider the good news of Jesus Christ, we might give a lot of thought to what we are saved from. And that is a good thing, that is right. Jesus Christ claims to be able to save us from sin and God's judgment. But salvation in the Bible is not just what we've been saved from, but also what we've been saved for. We are saved from something and we are saved for something. In other words, salvation in the Bible is not just the avoidance of something bad, but also the receiving of something unspeakably good. I wonder if you find it hard to believe that when earthly joys and temporary pleasures seem so much more tangible and real. When advertising campaigns constantly tell us that true satisfaction is to be had now in the things of the world. But here in Isaiah 25, God gives us a picture of the solid joys and lasting treasure that awaits his people. If chapter 24 was... Um, causing us to ask the question, do you realize how terrible the coming day of judgment will be? Well, chapter 25 is here to ask us a related question. Do you realize how wonderful the coming day of salvation will be? The minor key of chapter 24 shifts to a major key in chapter 25. The mood and the feel begins to change, and we will see the joy that comes on the other side of judgment. Isaiah is here giving us a picture of the future, He's telling us of the things that are to come when God brings his salvation. And when he comes, God's people will rejoice for three different reasons. They'll rejoice in God's judgment. They'll rejoice in God's feast. And they'll rejoice in his salvation. So let's begin in verse 1. Rejoice, God's judgment has come. Look at verse 1 with me and notice how the mood has changed. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. For in perfect faithfulness you have done marvellous things, things planned long ago. Now one of the things you might have noticed as Lucy read through this passage is that we move from an individual praising God in verse 1 to then the people praising God in verse 9. And here in this verse, the solo voice that is speaking is Isaiah. 
If you were here last week as we looked at chapter 24, you might remember Isaiah speaking. Simon mentioned um, those words earlier. But his words there were words of desperation rather than exaltation. He wasn't ready yet to join in the song that was being sung by the rescued people of God. We saw that at the end of verse 16 where Isaiah said, Woe to me, woe to me, I waste away. But now Isaiah joins in with the shout of praise. And he praises God because God has acted according to his promises. He has been faithful. Do you see that in verse 1? Perfectly faithful. And he has done marvelous things that were planned long ago. What are the marvelous things that Isaiah is talking about here? Why does Isaiah praise the Lord? Well, the answer might surprise us because the reason for Isaiah's praise is given in verse 2. He praises God for his mighty acts of judgment. Have a look at verse 2. You, God, have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigner's stronghold a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. We explore this idea of city in in chapter 24. The city is the city of man, the city of earth. It symbolizes the world that is structured without reference to their gods. A human city built on human ideals with human laws to govern it. A world that lives without reference to its creator. That's what Isaiah is talking about when he talks about the city. And do you see that God promises to bring it down? He will make it a heap of rubble. No longer will anyone search on TripAdvisor for places to eat or sleep in this city because they won't exist anymore. No longer will people come from abroad to find refuge there. The city will be no more, never to be rebuilt. God will act so decisively in his judgment that even strong nations will look on and fear God in verse 3. News will get out that this God is more powerful than the ruthless nations around And so people will look on with honour and fear. Now, I don't think that necessarily means that the strong peoples will come to worship God. um, But we do see that theme in Isaiah. But they do come to acknowledge God's power. And on this day, when the Lord brings judgment on human rebellion, Isaiah shows us two contrasting pictures. A picture of the poor and a picture of the proud. Have a look at verse 4, where we start with a picture of the poor. Isaiah says, you have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall and like the heat of a desert. You silence the uproar of foreigners as heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is stilled. Do you see that this coming day is a day of both comfort for the poor and also terror For the proud. For the poor and needy, we see that God is a refuge. He will be for them a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat when his judgment comes. Now, the poor and needy are mentioned in Isaiah at various points, and they're people who don't have any resources of their own to rely on before God. They are helpless and hopeless, desperate and dependent. And out of their place of need, they do the only thing that they can. They humbly cast themselves on the mercy and provision of God. Poor and needy people are humble people. People who lean on the Lord, not on themselves. And for these kinds of people who come to God in their need, he will be for them a place of refuge. Just contrast that with the fate of the proud in verses 4 and 5. Their breath, Isaiah says, is like a storm driving against a wall and heat 
um, blazing in the desert. It's a picture of relentless pressure and opposition that the ruthless nations um, inflict on others. It's the kind of pressure the people of God were facing in the time of Isaiah. Let me just um, mention chapter 36 as an example of this. The Assyrian army in chapter 36 marches to the gates of Jerusalem where God's people are situated. And the field commander of the Assyrian army shouts out to the people of God these words on the screen. He says, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have counsel and might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Here are the Assyrians swarming the city where God's people are, breathing down their necks like a storm against the wall. And the people face the same question that they have faced all the way through their history. Who will they trust in? On whom will they depend? Who will they lean on? The God of the universe or the powerful nations of the world? That's a question that is confronting God's people all the way through Isaiah. And do you see in verse 5 of our chapter how foolish it would be to turn away from the living God? Verse 5, you silence the uproar of foreigners. As heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is stilled. The ruthless, just imagine, sing as they approach God's people. They come with all their terrible might and power. But do you see the way that God deals with this opposition? He will silence their uproar just as the cloud would block out the sun. You might have enjoyed the warmth in Lancaster over the past few days. We've had some nice uh, sunny days at points. Um, on Thursday, I was walking around Lancaster University campus. There were students on the grass enjoying the sun at the end of exams. Sorry if that's still a little way left uh, for you this morning. But in a moment, we know that the blazing heat of the sun can be reduced by a cloud. It can be stopped by a cloud that easily floats in front of the sun. With so much ease, without any effort, the sun loses its force. So it will be, Isaiah says, for the enemies of God's people. With ease, God will quiet the advancing armies and bring to nothing the ruthless nations that rise up against him. This is why Isaiah praises the Lord in verse 1. These are the marvelous things that God will do. He will bring judgment, and that will bring joy for Isaiah. And that's a pattern that we see throughout the Bible story. God's people rejoice on the other side of victory. And if any places come to mind as you think about that theme, salvation coming on the other side of judgment. Exodus 15 is a great example of it. And there God brings his people out of slavery in Egypt. He brings them through the Red Sea, safe on the other side. And the waters crash over the Egyptians who are advancing to destroy God's people. And what do God's people do? when they get to the other side? Well, they do what Isaiah does in verse 1. In fact, the language is very similar. Um, on the screen, Exodus 15, Moses and all God's people sing this song. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Do you see the similar language there in Exodus 15? Praise arises from the lips of God's people on the other side of judgment when victory is won and when every enemy of God has been defeated by the Lord. Now I wonder whether um, our Christian brothers and sisters around the world might resonate with that perhaps more um, than we can. Just imagine with me being a Christian in northern Nigeria and experiencing the terror and the violence that comes at the hands of Islamic extremist groups there. 
Just imagine watching as your friends and family members are kidnapped or killed. Imagine gathering with your church family on a Sunday and wondering whether that will be the day when your church is overrun and targeted by armed men. Imagine enduring such persecution and then finding yourself on this day standing victoriously with God as your refuge, knowing that no threat will ever come your way again, knowing that every terror has been wiped away and that God has won the victory. This is a day when God's people will rejoice in the marvellous things God has done. It's a day to rejoice in his judgment. And through that judgment, on the other side of victory, God's people will enjoy a feast. Rejoice, God's feast is prepared. Look at verse 6 with me. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. Isaiah invites us to picture our future salvation if we're one of God's people. And it's hard to imagine a more beautiful and inviting picture than the one given in this verse. He says, first of all, that this will be a mountaintop feast. Do you see verse 6 and 7? These things take place on this mountain. Now in Isaiah, the mountain of the Lord is a theme that comes up several times. And the mountain is important because on this mountain is God's city, the city of Jerusalem, or as it's often called, the city of Zion. All God's salvation purposes are centered here in Jerusalem, on this mountain where God will reign with his people forever. We saw that at the end of chapter 24. That's the setting of this feast. But notice also the guests who are invited. It's a feast for all peoples. Do you see that in verse 6? Back in chapter 24, God um, said that no one would be excluded from his judgment. It would be the same for priest as for people, for master as for servant, and so on. And now we see that no one will be excluded from his feast. No matter what your race, your ethnicity, your color, your culture, nothing at all can exclude you from taking your place at this meal. It is for all people without distinction. We see also that this feast can be enjoyed for free. The Lord Almighty makes all the preparations for this meal in verse 6. It's not a bring and share. There's not a single plate brought by the people. God is the host and provider of this lavish feast. And he says to his people, not come and sacrifice or come and offer something, but come and receive, come and enjoy. In many different cultures around the world, it's normal, isn't it, to bring something with you when you enjoy a meal at somebody's house. A bottle of wine, a box of chocolates, a, box of, a, a bouquet of flowers or some fruit. But God doesn't want us to bring anything with us, does he? He has made everything ready. He is the one who completes all the preparations for us. It's a theme picked up in Isaiah chapter 55, later on in the book, um, on the screen. There we read these words. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. We cannot do anything to earn our place at this feast. We haven't got anything to offer God when we come. He simply calls us to come and enjoy, to come and receive. It's a reminder, isn't it, of God's gracious free offer of life and salvation with him. What Miriam was talking about earlier, grace. And this free feast on the mountain for all people will be a lavish feast. 
We might find ourselves in the evening searching through our cupboards, trying to find some food to throw together for our evening meal. But this is no store cupboard meal from the cupboards. It's no beans on toast, is it? This is a feast. Imagine every jubilee party, every wedding banquet, every Christmas dinner, every fiesta, every street party, every MasterChef final, every impressive celebration that you could imagine will pale into insignificance compared to this feast on the mountain that God prepares for his people. It's the kind of feast where you enjoy fillet steak and a lovely glass of red wine, and there's a dessert at the end that you just hope won't end because it's so good. It's the very best of everything. Rich food, aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wine. Here is a Michelin-star feast for all people from all nations that is free to enjoy and that will last forever. That is how Isaiah pictures the future. That is how God wants us to imagine eternal life with him. And do you see that the most wonderful part of this day is not the meat or the wine or the dessert. It's the one sitting at the table, acting as host, providing the meal, dwelling with his people. This is the goal of the entire Bible. This is the goal of all human existence, for people to dwell with their God forever. We were made to enjoy him, and one day we will. And on this day, we will enjoy God fully because God's victory over all things will be complete. Do you see in these verses that the start of the feast will coincide with the end of death? In the here and now, you and I might enjoy the very best of life, and yet the sadness of life is never too far away, is it? Just imagine going into a wedding banquet on a wedding day of a friend and enjoying the good food and the friends and the time around tables for conversation. And yet not too far away from everyone's mind is the empty chair that is left by the relative who's recently passed away. We carry into that wedding, don't we, all the sadness of life, even as we enjoy the best of life. Because death casts its shadow over life's enjoyment. But do you see that that will not be the case forever? Because on this future day, we will enjoy the presence of God without the presence of death. Have a look at verse 7. On this mountain, he, God, will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, a sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In every corner of this earth, people experience the presence of death, don't they? It covers the world with its darkness. Every family feels its force. Every church family knows its pain. Every individual knows the tears that are shed because of the presence of death. In the ancient world, death was seen as the great swallower. Death opens wide its mouth and no one can escape. Swallows up everything in its path. We experience that, don't we, today? But do you see what will happen on the mountain? Do you see the new state of affairs on this day? God will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people. He will destroy the sheet that covers all nations. And the great swallower of death will be swallowed up and it will be no more. There'll be no more need for hospitals or for hospices or for funeral directors. There'll be no more need for life insurance or for wills or for any end-of-life planning. Death will be swallowed up forever. And do you see that the sovereign Lord himself, the one who will wipe away the earth in his judgment, will wipe away the tears from the faces of all his people? 
like a parent might bend down and hold their crying child, wiping their tears away with their hand. So the Lord will tenderly deal with his beloved children. He will reassure them that they will now have no more cause for tears. Every sorrow and every sadness will be finally gone. The Lord will destroy death. And he will also remove disgrace. We see that in verse 8. He will remove disgrace that covers the people of the earth. Every insult, every persecution, every shame we feel for following Jesus. Every shame we feel when we don't follow Jesus. All of the disgrace of God's people in Isaiah's day as they were mocked by the surrounding nations. All of that will be removed. A feast on the mountain. A feast for all the peoples. A lavish feast provided by God with no more death just endless life and eternity to enjoy our creator. It's hard to imagine that day, isn't it? It's hard to imagine the pleasures that will be ours when we see God and enjoy him. It's hard to imagine a life without the presence of death, isn't it? It's hard to imagine life without disgrace. But Isaiah reminds us of the certainty of these promises at the end of verse 8. The Lord has spoken. I wonder if you remember the last time in Isaiah where those words were, were, were said, the Lord has spoken. It was back in chapter 24, um, verse 3. There the Lord promised that the earth would be consumed and laid waste, totally plundered. He was promising judgment. And Isaiah knows how difficult it will be for God's people to believe in that reality of judgment. And so they were called to trust in God's promise. The Lord has spoken this word. And I wonder if here in chapter 25, Isaiah also knows how hard we will find it to believe in this day, in the overabundant grace and goodness of God, in the end of death. God can't be this good, can he? He won't be this generous, will he? He can't be this kind, surely. The world to come won't be this wonderful, will it? In our hearts, I wonder if we find it easier to believe in a stingy God who withholds good things from us, rather than the wonderful host of this lavish feast. One writer says that the Bible is one long attempt to deconstruct our natural vision of who God actually is. We naturally view him as small and stingy, and if that is our view of God, then naturally our hearts will be small and stingy as well. But if our view of God is the view of Isaiah, the God of the feast, then joy will begin to characterize our Christian lives, won't it? We need to know that this day is coming, that this feast is real, that this God is there, and that death will end because the Lord has spoken this word. Thirdly, this will be a day to rejoice in because God's salvation will have finally come. Rejoice, God's salvation is here. As you come to the final few verses of this chapter, Isaiah now returns to the theme that he began with and the contrast between the humble and the proud. We start with the humble In verse 9, have a look at verse 9. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. That lone voice of verse 1 now widens out to include the people in verse 9. And on this day, do you see why the people rejoice? They don't praise themselves for their initiative They aren't glad in a salvation that they have somehow accomplished. They're not glad of the plate that they have brought to the meal to contribute. It's not by the strength of their own hands that they're saved. No, it's the Lord who's done it. Do you see that? This is our God, they say. He saved us. Let us be glad in his salvation. 
The people of God have just done one simple thing in this verse, the one simple thing that we find so difficult to do. They've trusted in God. They've trusted in his his salvation and they've waited for him. God's people know that they cannot bring salvation for themselves. God's people know that they cannot earn a place at God's feast. And so they wait patiently and humbly for him until the day when their waiting gives way to rejoicing. So we've got that as the first picture in these last few verses of the humble people waiting for God and waiting for his salvation. But just contrast that with the Moabites who we read about at the end of these verses in verse 10. Proud, self-reliant Moabites. Look at verse 10. The hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, but Moab will be trampled under him as straw is trampled down in the manure They will spread out their hands in it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. God will bring down their pride despite the cleverness of their own hands. He will bring down your high fortified walls and lay them low. He will bring them down to the very ground, to the ground, to the very dust. Do you see the contrast in these verses? The patient, humble people of God in verse 9 are contrasted with the proud, haughty Moabites. As the hand of the Lord rests in blessing on his mountain with his people, the feet of the Lord will trample his enemies in judgment. I find it surprising here, I don't know whether you do, that that Moab is mentioned, an individual nation is mentioned. If you were here last week, you might remember that uh, I I said that these chapters are, are telescope chapters that give us a universal, global view of what God is going to do for his world. They're so often general in the way that they talk. But here we have Moab mentioned at this point. Why Moab? Well, in Isaiah, it appears as though Moab were known for their pride. Just have a look at chapter 16, verse 6 on the screen. There we read, We have heard of Moab's pride, her overweening pride and conceit, her pride and her insolence, but her boasts are empty. How many times do you need to say the same thing in one verse? Pride, pride, pride. Moab are a proud people seeking to live life without God, and so they become a model and illustration of all the proud people of the earth. And do you see that instead of enjoying the feast of rich food on the mountain, God will trample them down in the manure? And even there, in this horrible image, they still seem to be relying on their pride, don't they? Do you see that in verse 11? They, Moab, will spread out their hands in the manure as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. They're trying to swim away. Even now, they're trusting in their cleverness and the power of their own hands. Even now, they are refusing to humble themselves before the Lord. But God will lay low their city and he will bring them down to the ground, to the very dust. As I was saying, that for all those who place their confidence in themselves, continuing in proud self-reliance, thinking they don't need anything from God, these people will get what they deserve, humiliating judgment. Do you see how stark Isaiah is making the choice for us in the images that he uses at the end of this chapter? Would you prefer the feast at the table or the foulness of the sewer? Would you prefer the meat at the feast or the manure in the streets? And our answer to that question will come down to our hearts. Will you be someone who humbles yourself before the Lord and who trusts in him for your salvation? 
Or will you be someone who carries on in your own self-sufficiency? This is the choice facing the people of the world. This is the choice facing us this morning. There is a day coming, a day of unspeakable joy for the humble people of God and a day of unspeakable horror for the stubborn, proud of heart. Where will you be on this day? That's the question confronting us. Will you choose the feast? Will you choose the feast? As we draw to a close, I'd like to ask the same question that I asked at the end of last week's sermon. Do you believe that this day is coming? Do you believe that this day is coming? A couple of weeks ago, one of our church family members was sharing with us how he first came to hear the good news of Jesus. And he said that many people in his culture, including him, thought that the news was too good to be true. Too good to be true. News of a generous God, good God, who wants fellowship with sinful and broken people like us. News of a God who has wonderful things prepared for us, a day when death will die and life will stretch out for eternity. It seems too good to be true. But as with last week, the same question faces us this morning. Will we let the vision of Isaiah change our vision? Will we let the word of God shape our view of where this world is heading? We need to remember that we are living in a time of greater clarity than the time of Isaiah because we are clearer on the plans and purposes of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah looked forward to a day of no more death and no more crying when God would have his victory. And in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, we are given a certain guarantee that this day will come. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul looks forward to the same day as Isaiah does, and he writes this on the screen. Looking to that day, he says, When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In our world, death has the final word, doesn't it? We cannot escape its reality. We cannot flee its presence. But in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he has the final word. And all the risen people of God will one day stand and taunt death and say to it, Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? God gives us the victory through the risen Lord Jesus. And so as we live in a world weighed down by the sadness of death, will you trust in God's promise of life through the Lord Jesus Christ? Isaiah has given us a wonderful picture of salvation, a salvation from judgment, the forgiveness of sins. But more than that, a salvation for something, a life with God where we will know lasting joy as we take our place among people from all nations at God's glorious feast. Solid joys and lasting treasures, none but those of Zion know. Let me pray as we end. Let's pray. Jesus tells us in Luke's Gospel that people will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Heavenly Father, the salvation you offer us through the Lord Jesus Christ is so much more than we deserve. We do not deserve 
crumbs that fall from your table, and yet you have prepared for us a feast. We thank you that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have swallowed up death and ushered in the kingdom of life. May we be those who humble ourselves and take our place at the feast, trusting in Christ, unworthy yet rejoicing. Our Father, as we continue to live under the shroud of death, and as tears continue to stream down our faces, please remind us day after day of your precious promises. And please would you come soon and wipe away every tear from our eyes. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take a moment um, to reflect on what we've heard, maybe to pray on your own or, or talk about what we've been hearing with a neighbour. And the children are going to come in uh, before we sing our, our last song.